And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. And another fadeaway, and it occurs to me to... to maybe we should lose the Gershwin room. I mean, are we, are we just... I mean, we, we started out doing a 1930s, like, live pickup from uh, the... Whatever the... The band was in, in, in Orson Welles' War of the Worlds adaptation. And we're getting younger and younger listeners who don't even know who Gershwin was. <laughs> well, look, we Gary. Should, we, should, we should change it to the Prince Memorial Room. Well, look, certainly. That was upsetting. I found that very upsetting. Pa- well, hang on. Pers- yes, certainly this could have come from Paisley Park instead. And yes, very upsetting news that he died suddenly this week. I. I think I said I feel very fortunate that I got to see him live about eight weeks ago. Oh, really? That recently? Yeah, he was over here in, uh, touring his uh, Piano on a Microphone tour. And, oh, that's right. Uh, Jessica, my daughter, and I went and saw him and sat about 40 feet from him, I suppose, looking straight at the top of a piano for a two-hour a, a two show, mm. and he was incredible and seemed from a distance to be in great health, but you know, it now appears there are other, you know, there are other factors. So, yeah, there was, and he was, uh, he was actually his plane landed in Moline, Illinois, a couple of hundred miles west of here, after a concert because he had some kind of a uh, medical problem. But uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's still st- stunning to me that he's only fifty-seven. Yeah. Um, but the other thing which I think is interesting is when things like this happen, um, there are some musicians that seem to have a connection to our literary world that others don't. I mean, Prince seemed to be, going back all the way back, back to Purple Rain, there seemed to be a, a pattern of imagery that that writers have picked up on. Before that, there was a Velvet Underground. There's obviously Dylan. But it seems to me that there are musicians, at least, who have a connection to the science fiction and fantasy world, which is hard to define, but which is more important than that of, of other musicians. Sure. I mean, you can't deny there's a strong, uh, fantastical imagery link, at least, if not links to particular works. And it's of course, kind of far I mean. beyond what you've said, I mean, Led Zeppelin had a strong, uh, connection to Tolkien. Right. And, uh, obviously David Bowie, who died at the beginning of the year, had a very strong connection to science fiction. And science fiction. Well, okay. David Bowie might even be a better example because you can begin to see that David Bowie is one of the few figures outside of science fiction, who began to influence the science fiction world um, and some science fiction writers. You can certainly see, uh, for example, I know one of the people who tweeted her her distraughtness about Prince was, was Elizabeth Hand. And Liz has talked a lot about the Velvet Underground, about uh, the Ramones, about the kind of music that helped to form her fiction. And, and she's of a certain generation. I'm just wondering if Prince is kind of of the generation after that who's informed younger writers in ways we may not, we may not even know about yet. Uh, do you mean the generation after the Velvet Underground? Yeah. There's probably yeah. a generation in between, uh, honestly. Probably. Because you can see the influence of the Brian Enos of the world, who's got strong mm-hmm. links to that sort of thing. He sits in, you know, in, you know it, even though you have to be pretty careful splitting the timeline, because I mean, what, Prince starts recording in the late 1970s? So I had been right. active for you know, a long, long time. I mean, I guess Eno was the early 1970s. Um, 
Zeppelin are laying down their fantasy-related stuff in the very late 60s, very early, early 1970, 70, 71. Mm. Um, I mean, it, I, I guess probably the, the that, more that, relevant that, thing to say, though, Gary, would be that there's a strong link to science fiction and fantasy in the work of these people, the imagery they use, because awareness of science fiction fantasy, first of all, generally is on the rise during that time. And it's, you know, these, the, the actual you know, people, you know, the artists themselves were something of outside, of, of outsiders in their lives. Well, and I there's think, an element of outsiderness to the I, fiction. I, I, I think that's true. And I think that, uh, the, to go back even, I guess, uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a little bit before Led Zeppelin was, was, was Hawkwind, was Moorcock. Um, and that had to be mid to, but, but the point is, this is the same community creating, for sure, uh, uh, creating rock music and creating a, a bizarre, this is, you know, panoply of, of, of fantasy and science fiction things. Um, there was, what was the, okay, what was Devo? When was Devo? 70s? 70s. I mean, Hawkwind okay. are contemporaneous with Led Zeppelin. They're formed in the in 1969. Okay, you must be looking this up because you could not possibly have known that in your head. <laughs> Some of them would be surprised not, what I do know in my head. And, and of course, one of the problems with the, the science fiction and fantasy link to rock, you know, well, to popular culture, to, to rock mm -hmm. music in particular, is there are some abysmal versions of it as well. I mean, you brought up Hawkwind. I will not bring up Michael Moorcock's involvement with that band. I was bringing that up deliberately, actually. And I, I, you know, I think we could skip over Billy Idol's cyberpunk album as well. There was a group in the mid '60s. I have their LP somewhere in my storage locker, called H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. All I, I, I listened to it. It was not very good. Um, it was before Lovecraft was anything like a cult figure, but it was still uh, a kind of recognition of that outsiderness that sure. some outsider, some independent. Uh, indie rock groups felt the same kind of marginalization in the culture that science fiction seemed to represent. Absolutely. And, I mean, you, you also get to see, and you, you allude to this when you refer to Elizabeth Hand, you know, uh, rock music and popular pop music bleeding into science fiction and fantasy itself. So you get it in things like uh, Benford writes Doing Lennon and hypothesizes a future to the Beatles that didn't exist. Baxter, Stephen Baxter does it the same, does the same thing. Uh, George um, R. R. Martin, it's Armageddon Rag with a band called the uh, Shiner, in his uh, World Fantasy Award-winning and brilliant novel Glimpses, mm -hmm. also uh, played with rock culture and then came back into the skateboard culture as well. Um, and then you have, I think it was it Paul McCauley and Kim Newman edited a terrific anthology of music related, pop music-related science fiction and fantasy called In Dreams. I think it was. Huh. Which featured some great stories, um, and then you, you also get that strong folk rock connection. I mean, most recently in Wilding Hall, the Elizabeth Hand story, but you see it uh, laced through the Borderlands work that Ellen Kushner uh, coordinated and edited, and through all kinds of other stuff. So, and, and the work of Emma Bull as well. So, yeah, Emma Bull and, and, and Terry Windling, and there's a, there's a, there's a whole series of. Uh... Well, I, I guess there haven't been a series of things, but what am I thinking of ballad, the, the ballads, novels based on old English ballads? Uh, mm -hmm. There were a couple of those, and Tam Lynn was obviously yeah, yeah. been done more than once. Uh, but 
but that seems to be in me to be a separate thing. It seems to me that fantasy and fantastic balladry are really part of the same genre, just separated in time by some centuries. Um, when we talk about uh, rock culture or uh, or mass media culture, we're talking about a slightly separate thing from that. Um, is there such a thing as science fiction music? I'm not sure I know. I don't have a good answer to that question, Gary. I mean, I, I love b- both science fiction and music. Very occasionally I have loved science fiction or seeming music, but mostly not. Probably the best of it is stuff that alludes to science fiction rather than actually um, overtly involves it. I mean, there was a pretty dismal superstar project called the Intergalactic Touring Band in the who put out one album, and that was overtly yeah. science fictional. Horrible thing. Um, I suppose you could say that Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds is a yeah. successful example. I mean, I think it's an abysmal, horrible recording, but that's me, just me. I have, I mean, if I never hear any of it again, never mind the, the follow-up, which was even worse. Blech. Anyway. Well, there are also things that I have not seen and only heard fragments of from, uh, from, from mainstream, what we can, what some people call contemporary classical music. There's the marriage, marriage of zones three, four, and five as an opera. There is, um, one that has got some good stuff in it musically, uh, which is a Swedish opera by Carl Birger Blomdahl called Aniara, based on the Harry Martinson poem, which is a generation starship opera. Uh, but if you don't like contemporary opera music, in other words, the fact that some contemporary or experimental or electronic or serial music has science fictional roots doesn't make it appealing to science fiction readers. So, so most of that stuff remains invisible. Yeah. The Doris Lessing operas, the, 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 the Harry Martinson operas, uh, there may be, I think I heard at one point an opera, uh, based on RUR or something like that. They just don't seem to connect to the science fiction community at all, the way rock music would, for example, or the way folk music would. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to culture of the time, and that's why there's the overlap. I was going to say, a really good example of this working, I think, is something like The Clash's London Calling, which okay. isn't a science, overtly science fictional song, but picks up overtly, picks up apocalyptic science fictional imagery to make its effect and is ultimately successful. Mm. I mean, we started with Prince. I'm not incredibly familiar with his oeuvre. I have stuff I, I really like and think is great, but. Same thing here. Um, I'd have to say that there is a feel, there's a use of imagery, particularly fantastical imagery, that captures that same sense, sort of feeling and really works. You know. Oh, I know also yeah. we forgot. You know, also is a great example of science fiction, sorry, not science fictional rock music, but rock that uses science fiction, Bold as Love by Gwyneth Jones, her quintet. That's absolutely true. And, and, and she seems to, she seemed, that seemed to be a very knowledgeable series. There were, what, three of those? Five. Six. Five. Six now. Six. Six now. Oh, right. The, the one was, uh, was self-published. Very knowledgeable about how that industry seemed to work as how that culture seemed to work. So that that's a very good example, except it's almost unknown in the States. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first book came out from Nightshade a year or two after it, it appeared in the UK mm-hmm. and never... You know, they, they, they didn't publish any of the follow-ups. In fact, one of the great shames, I think, of the modern science fiction era, Gary, mm-hmm. is that Gwyneth Jones is 
unpublished at this time. Unpublished even in England? Her last book was a self-published book, uh, a YA set in the Boulders Love Universe. Uh, that was a book called The Grasshopper's Child. And I think her previous book is now how long ago? I'm just trying to see if I can stumble across it. It's been, it's got to be, um, let me think, let me think, let me think. 2009, 2008 or something since her, her previous novel. And that's previous novel, and she had a book of essays, maybe two books of essays, uh, somewhere in there. Because she's a, she's one of the brilliant critics as well, and this is one of the things. We can debate about this. I think I think science fiction criticism is really important, even though you don't. But Gwyneth Jones... Oh, we'll come back and fix that, Gary. We're going to have that conversation in a second, I promise. But okay. continue about Gwyneth Jones. But my point is that in England... Well, actually, I shouldn't say this, because in England you have more of a a spillover of people writing really interesting critical stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. going back traditionally to Brian Aldiss writing what was... I thought we were talking about Gwyneth Jones, not rock criticism. No, but, but my point is Gwyneth Jones currently is the most interesting novelist slash critic working in England uh, that I can think of in the same way that Chip Delaney What about has Nina Allen? Nina Allen, I've not read a lot of criticism by her. She's certainly an excellent reviewer and so forth. Yeah. Um, and she's certainly a writer I admire greatly. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at her new novel now. Um, but th there's there's a lot more of that kind of back and forth than there is in England than there is in the States generally. My sense is. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you will have Jeff Ryman has written interesting pieces about science fiction. Uh, Gwyneth Jones has written a lot. Adam Roberts is a very uh, solid academic critic and historian, even though he has some eccentric views on the history of science fiction. <laughs> fiction and criticism with equal vigor. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, let's be fair to, to Adam Roberts here. Science mm -hmm. fiction basically is a a cloud, a fuzzy set of odd opinions about science fiction. There is no really non-odd opinion about science fiction. And, I mean, one of the ones we'll get to engage with, and I've been reading it in the background, I hope you have too, Gary, is the Vandermeer's Big Book of Science Fiction. I don't have it, but I've been following some of your discussions about it on Facebook, and one of the questions, of course, that comes up again, and it comes up in any debate about a, about a if not definitive at least exhaustive anthology is the question of definition. Any oh, absolutely. Anthology, any anthology that calls itself the big book of science fiction is implicitly telling you what science fiction is. Or well, that's, no, I disagree. You see, okay, I, see what I've done, I'm, this is really terrible, and it, we will talk about this book properly closer to its publication. I think we have to. Yeah. And I really do. I said it last week. I do want to get the Vandermeers on to talk about it if they will. I, I I think when you when you put together a fifteen hundred or twelve hundred page book of science fiction stories, you start to put, to point to paint a target on your back, uh, because course. science fiction is a community of people who love to nitpick, and they're going to nitpick. Mm -hmm. The big book of science fiction can just be a big book of stuff, right? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't carry that the Norton book of science fiction, which is definitive. However, because I checked, the introduction says the book's definitive, and that includes a definition. That's when you've painted the the uh, target on your back. The introduction to the Vandermeer book says yeah. it's definitive. Okay, that's a that's really a hazardous statement to make. Isn't it? Um, I mean, even the Norton book, um, 
and then the Norton book was eccentric, frankly. Yeah. But it's the Norton book of science fiction. And as both uh, the, uh, all three of the editors I've talked to about this, Brian Atterbury and Ursula Le Guin and, and, and Karen Joy Fowler, and I actually talked to a sales rep from Norton who said, okay, anybody who went to college in the United States and studies English or American literature or now world literature is used to something called the Norton Anthology of World Literature. The Norton Anthology claims to be definitive. It wants to be the standard text. The reason the Norton Book of Science Fiction was not called the Norton Anthology of Science Fiction was precisely to avoid that appearance of attempted um, infallibility. Yeah. In other words, the Norton Book it of does, Science it Fiction... Does, it doesn't, excess, Norton, doesn't get around it, though, does it, Gary? It still tells the Norton book, right? It's Well, now, I mean, people who know Norton anthologies know that the Norton Book of Science Fiction is not an official Norton anthology. It's, can I tell you why I love the Vandermeer's book already? Okay, tell me. This is why I love the Vandermeer's book. I mean, first of all, they have good taste, and the stories they've chosen are good. So it's going to uh-huh. be good reading. Second of all, I just love this kind of almost pointless conversation. I do. I love it. And what they've done is they have assembled a book which supports a view and an argument that they endorse, or that they're proposing at least. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to engage with that. They are argue, They're putting forward... I have to be very careful what I say because I'm not trying to put anything in their mouths. They're putting forward a point of view that is different from the Gernsback continuum view of science fiction, of the history of science fiction. It, and that in itself is interesting. I don't think the book can claim to be definitive. I don't think they seriously think it is. I might be wrong. But they cause, they, they, by putting together this book, by proposing the definition that they have, by taking the worldview that they have in the book, they make us reconsider what we already know about science fiction. They make us look at a different angle. Absolutely. And that is really valuable. That idea that you can remove particular, because, I mean, okay. The golden age of science fiction argument in the Gernsback continuum is an incredibly privileged view. It's a very archaic view as well. It's archaic, yes, but I mean, it, it is based on white privilege, on North American white privilege, more than no, anything no. else. In fact, male North American white privilege. Um, and so, Taking those blinkers off and opening the field up and trying to argue it from a different angle, really interesting. Uh, we will get around to maybe discussing with them their definition of science fiction because possibly in a good way it raises more questions than it answers, and I'd like to ask some of those questions. I think to some extent every, uh, almost every major anthology, major historical anthology about science fiction, and this probably includes critical histories of science fiction, since the 19, since roughly 1970, have been in response to that consensus future history. A consensus future history was actually a term that Donald Wolheim used in the um, book of his called the, the Universe Makers. But for, in a fairly cluster of period of time in, in the 70s, there were histories or studies of science fiction uh, by Lester Del Rey, the world of science fiction, by Donald Wolheim, by James Gunn, the only one who's still around of that group. Um, and one of the first salvos against that was Brian Aldous writing The Trillion Year Spree, in which he wanted to point out that the British, uh, the um, scientific romance was a separate tradition. And since then, I think, to some extent, 
anthologists have been overcorrecting, not overcorrecting, but correcting that very narrow male cisgender, the, the, the John W. Campbell rule. I mean, what we're talking about, all the privilege we're talking about is the privilege of John W. Campbell himself. Um, yes. What Vandermeer seems seem to be doing is on a much broader scale, a little bit what, a little bit like what Brian Aldous was doing. Brian Aldous wanted to at least include some more significant British science fiction in a different tradition. What the Vandermeers are saying is, what if you go back and look at the same period of time that, that Walheim and, and Gunn and the other, uh, Del Rey, if you look at the same period of time and look at it globally, look at it outside of this narrow range of American magazines, there has always been a lot more to science fiction than we were being told. Sure. And I think you're absolutely right about that. And look, I mean, I encourage people to go out and buy the book and to read the book, to try and get a feel for its argument, because I think there's a lot to be gained from that. And then, and the one argument that I know we will see, we're already seeing it, the one argument that really holds no water is the one that plays the tick box game. You know, I, I, if you don't have this person or this person or this person or this person in the book, the book is flawed. Now, I've always said, I've said at this podcast that I think that the, um, David Hartwell's The Science Fiction Century. And mm -hmm. I love and respect David Hartwell's a huge figure in the field. But The Science Fiction Century is a fatally flawed book. It's fatally flawed because Hartwell filtered the big four in science fiction, Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, and Paul, out of that book because they were so well known. Uh huh. There are people that the Vandermeers couldn't use, first of all, couldn't use because they weren't available contractually, and Heinlein is one of those, and they've said so. Yeah. But uh, I think also with the way they're approaching their book, it's it's more about representing the evolution of the fiction and different perspectives rather than name-checking particular people. I think that's absolutely true, but I think you could say the same thing was true about the Norton book of science fiction, which was an eccentric choice in terms of well-known names, but a... But an interesting choice if you simply look at the fiction. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. If somebody goes through a table of contents, and I think people do tend to look at large anthologies this way. They go through the table of contents thinking, I know this story, I know this story. If there are too many stories, or even worse, too many authors they don't know, then uh, there's this knee-jerk reaction, well, your version of science fiction clearly isn't mine. Yeah. And yet there are these areas, okay, there in any anthology like this, there are some stories that most science fiction readers will not recognize, names they won't recognize, and they're familiar names. But then one of the things, one of the authors they have uh, in this collection, who I think is really sadly overlooked and is important in all kinds of inchoate ways, is David R. Bunch. Yeah. I love the Moderan stories. The Moderan stories seem to be stylistically experimental. Now, the guy was not connected to the field. I think he was a poet from St. Louis or something. He didn't write very much. Um, but it's, it's a kind of story that holds up. If you look at the literary tradition of science fiction, if you look at people from Ted Chang to David Marasek to Rachel Swirsky, who have done really bizarre things with the language of science fiction, Bunch is one of the predecessors of that. So if you look at modern writers and trace them back, you get a different history of science fiction than if you look at the magazines of the 60s and trace them back. I'd also say, and this is why the... The cherry-picking approach to the book would be a unfortunate one. I think focusing on who is or who is not in this book or in a book like this 
with some exceptions, is really just an excuse to argue with the argument rather than engage with it, to not pay attention to what's being proposed, to um, throw stones from outside. And the thing is, and this is why I think you shouldn't do that, you can't do a book like the Big Book of Science Fiction or a book like the Norton Book of Science Fiction, or a book like the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, or indeed a book like the, Sci the Hard SF Renaissance or the Science Fiction Century, without first wow. loving science fiction very deeply. And so... I think that's true. I think you need to respect that. But I think one of the questions is, what to sort of paraphrase the title of Paul Kincaid's collection of essays, what do people love when they love science fiction? Um, for some people... Looking through a table of contents and finding familiar names is a comfort zone. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. What I've thought about science fiction all these years is right. They're validating it. If that same writer sees a bunch of names that are unfamiliar, the, the immediate feeling, I suppose, is one of threat. This, my, my view of science fiction is being threatened by these people. They're telling me I should have read people that I didn't read. Uh, and at the most extreme version of that argument, they're telling, they're, they're prescribing a different view of science fiction to me from the one I want to hold on to. Um, uh, so, so to some extent, but, and I can ask you this as an anthologist, isn't it partly the job of the anthologist to challenge those readers and say, look, I understand you like space opera. Let's take an example. Um, let's look at Ken Liu. I understand you like stories that look like Mano no Awari, which is a classic sort of hard science fiction story. Uh, but here's a writer who also writes magic realism stories over here. And shouldn't you be looking at the writer and not the content of the tale? Not always, no. Oh, okay. I think there are times when you should be looking at the writer because that's reasonable. But sometimes you're looking about the evolution of the field and the form. And the individual mm -hmm. writer is subjugated to that. Because they, you know, maybe you've got a Ken Liu or a Ted Chang or whoever else who writes a major work that contributes to the evolution of the form, but it's only one note in their bow. So they're, if you like, they're contributing to the, if you like, the symphony of science fiction with one or two notes, a little solo or whatever else, but it's a subset of them. So there's two perspectives, both valid, but, you know, I don't think you, you know, you have to look at the author as primary when you're looking at science fiction as a whole. I think you can look at science fiction as primary. Um, but there are so many writers who won't write within the boxes anymore. So what? Um, I mean, if, if you, if, if the reason I mentioned Mano no Awar is there, I assume I'm pronouncing that reasonably correctly in the Japanese, mm. um, that that is, so it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's got some cultural sensitivity to it that we're not familiar with in hard science fiction, but a good chunk of that story is involves heroic Heroic action in space, self-sacrifice in space. Yeah. It's a classic analog story. By the same author who, I'm, I'm thinking about this because of his Paper Menagerie collection, who has a story like the Paper Menagerie, which is not remotely defensible as science fiction. It's pure fantasy. Um, and sure, thematically, the stories are related because they deal with heritage and identity and personhood and family. There is more than one way, as you know, Gary, of looking at things. And both Absolutely. are valid and important. Yes. I think you can look at the evolution of a form and the evolution of a writer. 
and I think they can be s separate discussions. I think you okay. can look at the evolution of Ken Liu and the breadth of what he does. I think you can look at the evolution of, if you like, speculative fiction, as much as I dislike that term, and you can look at the evolution of science fiction. They're all different, what, different aspects of the same thing. Um, years ago, <coughs> decades ago, <clears throat> going back so far that nobody else but me remembers this, um, Gordon Dixon, Gordon Dixon published a pretty nice fantasy novel. Uh, he had done some fantasy short fiction before then, but he was your classic Dorsai, uh, you know, pre, pre, um, Jedi, pre, pre Star Wars. He was your classic hard SF epic sort of, uh, writer. And he wrote The Knight and something like in the title. And people were upset. The Dragon and the George? The Dragon and the George. I like the, I like that quite a bit. Yep, it's a good um, book. It had nothing to do with any of his science fiction. I recall people being upset that their favorite writer, the, the person who had, you know, always reliably delivered solid space opera, well thought out space opera. I think to this day, Gordon Dixon is an underrated writer, but he suddenly had betrayed them. He'd written, he'd written a fantasy novel and he'd written a fantasy novel for good reasons. Uh, it was a time when fantasy was ascendant. He had, he had written fantasy stories before that. He had a good understanding of it. He was a literate guy. And yet at that point, People felt, some people, some readers felt betrayed by Gordon R. Dixon because he had given up science fiction for fantasy. And that strikes me as being really unfair to the writer and an argument that the writer ought to be subsumed to the genre, which I don't think is fair to any writer. I don't think that a writer should be subsumed to the genre, but I think that a work can. A work can. That's what, I, I mean, that's what I'm arguing. What I'm saying is you can look at The Dragon and the George as part uh -huh. of the evolution of modern fantasy. Absolutely. Right? Uh, just as you can look at Dorsai as part of the evolution of modern science fiction. And then you can look at jo Gordon R. Dixon as an, uh, as an example of the evolution of the modern genre writer. I think that's true. And I, I, all those things have been done, and readers do that. And you do have a case, um, very rare case, the only one that really comes to mind is Ian Banks, of maintaining two separate careers separated by a middle initial. Um, and he seemed to be happy with that. He seemed to enjoy uh, that. But it, it also strikes me that the readership of the Ian Banks um, science fiction has never overlapped that much with the readership of the Ian Banks mainstream novel. Really? Do you think that's true? I think that I think I think the science fiction readers are more likely to pick up the mainstream novels than vice versa. I, I couldn't possibly hope to parse that. Everybody I've met who reads Ian Banks reads all of his stuff. Um, I I know of people, and I know some literary people who, um, the farthest they've gone to the science fiction side of the spectrum would have been The Wasp Factory, uh, which was... What's your favorite Ian Banks novel? I haven't read all of the Ian Banks novels. I have to be very honest about this. I liked Accession. I liked The Wasp Factory a lot. And I don't think I've read any of the other mainstream novels. Okay. My favorite science fiction Ian M. Banks novel is The Player of Games. Okay. Which I think just got picked up for um, the Facebook guy's uh, book group. Oh, really? That would be interesting. Yeah, you know, what's his name? The guy who said it Facebook. Him. Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my favorite Ian Banks novel, probably my favorite Banks book overall, is The Crow Road. 
which is which brilliant, wonderful, starts with one of the best opening lines I've ever read. Mm-hmm. It was the day my grandmother exploded. It's a great opening line. How can you not be, be, be interested to see how that works out? Fantastic book. Fantastic writer. Um, I mean, I'm not sure where we're going with this, though, Gary. Which, well, which I mean, I, I, I guess the idea we're going back to an old uh, bit of territory we've covered before, which is the line between science fiction, uh, not just the line between science fiction and mainstream, but the fact that uh, writers more and more would like their readers to follow them wherever they go, and there are always certain readers that don't want to follow the writer out of familiar territory. There are readers who don't want their favorite science fiction writers to be messing with fantasy, or their favorite fantasy writers to be messing with science fiction, or their favorite uh, science fiction or fantasy writers to be messing with mysteries or mainstream novels or historical romances. Or to be fair to the to the reader of, uh, and, and perhaps Carsten's being a little bit less conservative, maybe they just enjoy one aspect of that writer more than the other. I mean, for example, I read Stephen R. Donaldson's science fiction, you know, his space opera, his fantasy, uh-huh. and his mysteries. And his fantasy was much more successful than either of the other, not just in commercial terms, but in actual terms. I yeah. tend to enjoy reading C.J. Cherry's science fiction more than her fantasy. This isn't because I object to her writing it. It's just what she chooses to do, I think, resonates better with that form. I, I, I agree, and I think that that's true of many writers. And I, I, I've, not, I've not talked to her recently about it, but I remember talking to Liz Hand a couple of years ago about how many of her science fiction and fantasy readers are following her, following her into the cast Neary mysteries, of which a new one is... Is about to come out because they're really good, hard-boiled punk, um, uh, sort of, I don't know, Norwegian death metal versions of, of of mystery novels with a really unsympathetic character, but sympathetic at the same time. And all of the stuff that I liked characterologically and stylistically in Elizabeth Hand's fantasy is there. Uh, I haven't asked her whether the whether the fantasy readers are picking up on the mystery or whether she's getting a new readership entirely. Um, I think it's it's generally true that when some science fiction and fantasy writers have tried to move into non-fantastic genres, they've had problems. Yeah. And it's equally true that when some successful writers in non-fantastic genres, Walter Mosley comes to mind, tend to move into science fiction, they tend to do it in a fairly clunky way. A slightly different topic is that many mainstream writers, when they try to do science fiction, end up writing things that look like the Twilight Zone, that look like early 20th century dystopias that play to play against their own strengths. Yeah, probably. I mean, did you, I, I may be the only one who's read this. John Updike wrote a science fiction novel called To the End of Time. It's awful. I mean, it's indefensible. John Updike scholars, I think, like to pretend it wasn't there. Uh, it was a sincere effort to engage with what science fiction does, but it just revealed his utter lack of understanding of, of 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 even the basic narrative conventions. How much genre experience do you think someone needs to successfully write genre then? I mean I think it's I don't think I mean because and also it's like okay, when you make that kind of an assessment, let me ask this question instead actually. When you make that kind of assessment you just did, are you playing fair with the mainstream writer? Maybe they're trying for something different. They're not looking for genre effect. I don't know. I think one of the things that 
is a giveaway when they're looking for genre effect is when they're pulling stuff off the shelf of what they perceive to be genre. Mm -hmm. They're going to pull a time machine off. They're going to pull an alien off. They're not thinking through things. Um, I don't, I'm not talking about whether this is always successful or not. I don't think Doris Lessing's science fiction novels are successful. Mm -hmm. But I think they're sincere efforts to use the materials of science fiction honestly. Yeah. To get at some philosophical ideas which you really need to get at. Um, I think that's a little bit different from mainstream writers who are slumming, and there are some of those. There have been some of those, I should say. Paul Through is one who I believe was, thump, was, was basically slumming when he wrote The Ozone, which is not really defensible as a science fiction novel or as a Paul Through novel. I'm not really in intensely attracted to this argument. Um, I kind of feel like if, genre, if mainstream writers, mainstream writers in inverted commas, air quotes, if they want to take elements of genre and play with them, let them. Who cares? I mean, I've, I, I passed through a period of time where a lot of people I knew got very agitated about this. Uh, you know, John Updike wrote a lousy science fiction novel. Who cares? It's true. It had, it's, it's had no impact at all. I mean, you know, here 10 or 15 or 20 years later, it's, it's more or less completely forgotten. Um, I sometimes think when you get closer, when you get closer to doing really good science fiction, um, and you're borrowing things that are are very close to being good science fiction, it's a little bit more problematical to me. It, it's problematical to see Margaret Atwood, who comes very close to writing very good science fiction. Not quite all the way, but at moments there are some brilliant stuff. And some of the time she's borrowing material from the Gwen, some of the time borrowing material from other people. Uh, I don't have a problem with her doing that because I think she's doing it in good faith given her understanding of the field. Yeah. And by the same token, I would defend any mainstream writer to want it to, who wants to pull material from science fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever. They have the same freedom to do that that any science fiction writer does to write a mainstream story. Yeah. Uh, that, that I, I absolutely am not talking about putting people in pens and locking the door. Sure. My apologies for the phone ringing in the background. I'm the only one at home, so I've had to just oh. mysteriously hang up on someone who called. I don't even know who it was. So, well, uh, look, let me, uh, okay, can I come back to something you're talking about? Because I've got nothing useful to add to the whole mainstream thing. You touched on my comments in recent episodes about nonfiction and criticism and the value thereof. Yes. yes. My comments were intended to, from were uh, were put from this position. It's not that I think science fiction criticism is of no potential value. I think it's of little actual influence. I think no one reads it, and if it's never read, it's not read by a lot of people. But I is, it, is the value of not, especially when you're talking about a specialized form of nonfiction, is its value based on how many people read it, or as our mutual friend. Charles Brown used to say on who reads it and how they read it. Well, um, since you've got no idea who's reading it, it becomes a bit of a moot point. Well, sometimes you do have an idea who's reading it. I mean, you have an idea that uh, it's not more than an average book about science fiction. An average journal issue about science fiction is probably going to have a few hundred readers at most. Uh, and some of those are simply people who are in the academic world and doing academic things. They may be writing an article on the same thing. It's, that, that, okay, that's completely self-contained world. There are cases that I can mention 
involving criticism where writers have actually paid some fairly serious amount of attention to criticism and thought about it and where they have told me it has changed their approach to their own fiction in some way or made them more aware of their own fiction or made them more conscious of the kind of artistry that they could make use of in their in, in their own fiction and when I include when I say criticism in that sense I'm not talking simply about academic criticism but I'm also talking about reviews because I think reviews are part of this world as well well okay I can see where something like, say, Paul Kincaid's The Widening Gyre from a couple of years ago, that essay yeah. had some impact on the discussion going on at the time. Right. People read it. It was published in a major newspaper. I don't think that something like, let's, let's pick on things, the New York Review of Science Fiction or Foundation, mm. these days, well, certainly these days, I mean, even if they did at some point have an influence, have any practical influence much at all. Not as a not as a general organ. You're talking about publications rather than individual works. You can't compare one essay by Paul, by Paul Kincaid to an ongoing journal, which is of interest to a very narrow group and occasionally may publish something that influences the way people think. I mean, I don't I don't. It's just awkward for me to mention this, but but I've had authors tell me that I've that they have rethought some things that they've been sure. writing. Because of stuff I've written, yeah, um, and I, I, I wouldn't even want to mention their names because no. it sounds awful to say that. But I know that a lot of writers pay attention seriously to the theoretical structure of the field, and that influences their fiction. Chip Delaney has always been interested in theory sure. since he was a twenty-year-old, and that certainly informs his, uh, especially things like the Neverian books. Um, there are other writers that you know may not read a lot of academic criticism, uh, and it may affect or, or not affect their fiction. My point is, the purpose of criticism is not to affect the fiction. Occasionally, it happens. Then, what and is the purpose of, of criticism? Purpose of criticism is to talk. Is to do exactly what we're doing on this podcast. Yeah, but uh, nobody's listening. Hmm? I mean, there's theoretically two thousand people will listen to this, and we say hello to each and every one of you. Hello. Yes. But particularly to, to Paul, hi Paul, Fred, um, other Paul. Um, but apart from Paul, Paul and Fred and possibly Cat, those four people who are listening, mm. uh, that's already four more people who are reading every, than read every issue of Foundation is my guess. I mean, I don't think NYRSF has ever had more than a couple hundred potential readers. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the figures on there are, those are, but, I go back to my original point. We're not doing a business of numbers. We have, we may have only a couple of thousand <laughs> listeners. Oh, this is such an opening. We may have only a couple of thousand listeners, but they are the smartest, most literate, most informed, most curious, most engaged listeners well, we could possibly have. We don't want the other 20,000 people who aren't listening to us. They don't know what's going on. Our listeners do. As soon as you become one of our listeners, Gary, you become one of the people we want to talk to. Exactly. There are people, that said, people, God, this is terrible. That said, I, I stand by my point. I mean, I see your point. You're saying that uh, a, a tiny niche pu publication where you put in some abstract argument about the evolution of some aspect of science fiction can be read by somebody and can have some kind of impact. What I'd argue to you is it's a, from, in the most cases, it's a small impact, and it's mostly something talking to itself. 
Um, I think that's true, and I think that's true of about 90% of the fiction that you see in the oh, world sure. as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, writing is, by its nature, <clears throat> divided between niche populations and <clears throat> popularity. And by, by and large, one of the things that's always fascinated me about science fiction is that it's always been a niche interest in literature. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We've talked about this before. In film and television, it's a separate question. But in literature, it's always been a niche interest. And within that niche interest, hard science fiction is a niche interest. And um, postmodern science fiction is a niche. And within those niche interests, there's a niche called academia, which is a tiny niche of a niche. My argument is simply that niches are worthwhile, that people may be having a conversation with 20 or 30 or 200 other people like them. It may enlighten their perception of the genre in a way that they find rewarding, in the same way that reading a short story that maybe nobody else has ever read or ever will read, they may find that rewarding as well. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure that an individual find it rewarding. I just was arguing that they don't, that academic criticism doesn't have much influence because it's not widely read. It doesn't, and it doesn't. And my, I stand by that. Opinion. That's all. I, I'm not going to argue that it has influence or that it's widely read. My oh, argument. Into different ter territory now, Gary. Hmm? Going to move us into different territory now. Okay, move us into different. Okay, territory. we are recording on the morning of the twenty fourth of April, two thousand and sixteen, Gary. My time, and my time is mm -hmm. the only time that counts to me. And in about seventy two hours, I guess. Uh, Mid-Americon 2 will announce the nominees for the Hugo Awards for 2016, or I guess 2015. Uh, I'm already on, men on record as mentioning that the book that should win the Hugo is Stan uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, which for my money is the hand-down best science fiction novel of 2015, and it was a major omission of the for the Nebulas not to have nominated it as well, or not to have nominated it, right? That's my feeling. Um, there's no doubt there'll be a lot of interest in these Hugo Awards. The people at Mid-American have already told us have been double the number of nominations that any other yeah. previous Hugos have received, and we talked about that last week. Um, what I want to touch on for like just in very little detail is, do you think that the activity of the last two to three years where people seeking to change the, the uh, Hugo Awards and to bring a different kind of work into them has damaged the reputation of those awards and the way people feel about engaging with them. I think we have to wait and see what happens this year. I think that the Hugo Awards from last year were damaged. Uh, I really think that, uh, and, and we talked about it at the time, that 20 or 30 years from now, having won a Hugo Award isn't going to make much difference in anybody's career. So historically, it's not a major, not much more than a blip. In terms of immediacy, I think that, yes, the Hugo Awards have been damaged in terms of reputation. I think that the Hugo Awards last year, I think and we may have mentioned this when we talked about this on the podcast way back when, are a little bit like a baseball player setting a batting record or setting a home run record and then, and then having been revealed to be on steroids. So, you know, the record won't be removed, but there'll be an asterisk at the very least. Um, and the Hugo Awards last year seemed to be one with an asterisk. Um, I don't think that if you look at a writer like Anne Leckie, who's got a very successful career going, who 
last year would, was or would have been on the ballot no matter what manipulation went on, probably will be again this year. It's not going to affect her career in any sense at all. The only careers it might affect are the people who just didn't get on the ballot at all. People who had a chance to get a higher level of visibility uh, that won't have that chance. That's that's what makes me sad. New, well, younger... I, I, well, actually, I, I, I take that point. Uh, and I actually agree there's some, some, some negative effect there. Is there, though... A sense. I mean, despite the fact that there's a record engagement this year of people disengaging from the awards because of this, becoming I, of walking away from them. I don't know. I mean, it, it, common sense says that if people are walking away from the awards, why would there be a record record number nomina- nomination? There are all kinds of reasons for it, Gary. I mean, for a start. The eligible, the pool of nominators, the eligible pool of nominators has increased. Yeah. Uh, LUNCON was a huge convention. Sasquan was a huge convention. I don't know what the membership of MidAmericon is. And I imagine that FinCon, or, uh, you know, next year is going to be yeah. big. You know, the, the pool of nominators is bigger. And because of the controversy, probably more people are thinking about the awards. But also, I mean, when I pick up, um, when I'm talking to, to, to friends, I'm now picking up a real weariness, a sense of, oh, I'm just going to move on to talk about other things. This is just, you know. Well, I I, I get some of that, too. I mean, I've talked to people who, you know, waiting in past years, um, there was a certain amount of waiting with bated breath to see the Hugo nomination. I'm getting a lot of ennui about that. I'm talking to people who are saying, yeah, it'll be interesting, but no longer, I can't wait. Um so, so, to that extent, the Hugos have already lost a certain amount of their luster. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what will happen this year, but uh, they could lose more. They could gain some back, whatever. I think the general sense, though, is uh, the sense I got last year in Spokane, that no matter how weird the Hugos seemed to be, the Worldcon itself was still in pretty good shape. People were still seeing their friends. They were still going to panels. They were still going to the dealer's room. The, in, in everything other than the Hugos, Worldcon last year in Spokane was like any other Worldcon. It was fine. Yeah. Oh, well, well, we shall see what happens. I mean, certainly next week, I guess, we will talk discuss the uh, Hugo nominees because they'll be out. I don't think we'll drop in a special episode or anything. Uh, and, of course, we're, we're double recording next week, Gary, as you will recall, because we'll be discussing uh, Paul McCauley's new novel. Which I should be able to read by next week. If I can Me too. I've got to read it as well. Um, but yeah, look, interesting times, I think. Um, we are. I mean, I, the, 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 the one thing when you were talking about how few people are involved in science fiction and criticism, and then how few people used to vote for the Hugo Awards, I thought maybe there's something to a small elite group after all. I don't know. Um, no, I, I'm not beguiled by that argument much at all. Uh, what I would say is that I would like to think that there was a uniformity of intent. And I don't think there's a uniformity intent in this larger voting populace or nominating pool at the moment. I think that there's a bunch of people who are committed to it, to science fiction and to the World Science Fiction Society and who are, uh, are looking to nominate and they look to build something. And then I think there's a bunch of spoiled brats who are looking to destroy things. There was, uh, there so, was you know. No, there was no doubt last year that there was I guess what I mean by that, I don't want to sound terribly elitist, but there was a hardcore always 
even when they were wrong, a hardcore of Hugo voters who passionately cared about science fiction and whatever their definition of science fiction, which for many decades was very narrow and, and white male oriented, whatever their limits were, they wanted to find the best of those works. And I think that's different from a votership that is not looking at any kind of broad range of works at all, but that is trying to right wrongs, is trying to celebrate things that, uh, it, the distinction I'm making is that when you move out to thousands of people, the odds are reduced that all of those thousands of people are going to be as passionately engaged with the future of the field as those few hundred voters that you got years ago were. That is possibly true. However, I'm enough of a populist that I would say that as long as you have the intent of supporting science fiction, as long as you love science fiction, and as long as you're not attempting to destroy and tear down things, mm -hmm. then I think you should be involved. I know I don't mind whether there's 200 people voting for the Hugos or 200,000. Uh, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. But the, the chances of 200,000 people voting, having read a lot of stuff. I mean, in past years, there have been contests between hard science fiction people and anthropological science fiction people voting on the Hugos. That was an interesting debate. It was like, which area should science fiction be focusing on? And in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up because I probably could not defend it in terms of a single year Hugo voting. But it seemed to me that there were people who were uh, wanted to support feminist science fiction and people who wanted to support old-fashioned military science fiction. They would kind of pick their novels and go at it. Um, I think that there's less of that now. I think that there's less of an engagement with the field, and that may be part of the fallout from last year. I think there's an engagement with subsets of the field, which is less healthy. Maybe. That, that might be true. I mean, I've long wondered, you know, if you fragment the field enough, what do you lose? You know, you lose, you, you, it certainly becomes more difficult to see an overall shape of the field and how it evolves. Uh, but I, I also think, I, I choose to feel that the, what we're describing, the, the, the fragmentation, the atomization of the field is a temporary, is a phase. That what's happening is a field that was cohesive, but exclusionary. Yeah. Has grown. As it's grown, those small pockets of it have become more coherent, more uh, firmly built, better defined. And that one, you, you'll get to a point where they're sufficiently well defined that they'll come back to form a larger, more multicolored, multi-hued, multifaceted field. It could be. I think the problem with, the fra with using the word fragmentation is it has two completely different meanings. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the fragmentation in terms of ideologies, if you will, not not related to the fiction, but just what the fiction ought to be. The other kind of fragmentation is what we were talking about earlier with the Vandermeer's anthology, that, that science fiction maybe ought to be more international, maybe ought to be more non-English language, maybe ought to be, uh, you know, more broadly gendered than it is. Fragmentation in that sense, I'm completely in support of. Fragmentation in the sense of forming political parties, that worries me a little bit. Well, maybe. Well, we shall see what happens anyway. We'll come back. We'll talk about the Hugos. Let's wind up because we're at about uh -huh. an hour. Um, let me, let's wind up with this. What, Gary, in this science fictional week are you reading at the moment? 
one of the novels we're going to be talking about soon, which um, raises what I think is an interesting sort of trend in science fiction, is the first novel by Ada Palmer called Two White Lines. You know, you're dropping out again. Um, that, you're talking about Ada Palmer's Two Like the Lightning? It's a utopian novel. Oh, yes. And it's interesting in two ways. Are you hearing me now? Yes, yeah. Okay. It's interesting because it is a novel that grapples with the idea of utopia rather than a kind of knee-jerk dystopia. Stylistically, people are going to find it challenging. It's written in the style of an 18th century novel. But it's also a novel that grapples with philosophy in in a kind of classical way. I mean, it, it grapples with real philosophy. It, it, it grapples with Voltaire and Diderot and, uh, and, and, and Cicero. So there are real ideas in it. And what's interesting about it is that it, uh, it has a blurb from Joe Walton, who is writing her own series of science fiction novels about philosophy. And it, it made me think, okay, Neil Stevenson did the entire history of Western philosophy renamed in Anathem. So is there a trend towards science fiction about philosophy these days? I don't know. What else have you been reading? Um, one of the things we talked about uh, on the podcast uh, a little bit last week, a little bit before that, uh, were the Eleanor Arneson Horhat stories, which when you see them all together, you realize how really good they are. Um, and I'm starting... Um, what I'm about to read, since we mentioned Nina Allen, is her new novel, uh, The Core. Is that the title? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. When's that coming uh, out? I don't know anything about it. Next year? But, but it, it's coming out in a couple of months, I believe. Okay, that's sooner than I would have thought. Okay, that's great. I didn't know that was coming out this year. I thought it was next year. So, so yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm getting interesting things. I mean, there's a, there, there are things that I don't know what to make of when I get them and I want to read them. Uh, there's a young adult novel by Michael Bishop. Michael Bishop is somebody who seemed to me be, to be, and he still seems to me to be one of the major figures of a certain period of time, leading up to Brittle Innings, which I think is one of the great underrated masterpieces of historical science fiction. He has a young adult novel called Joel Brock the Brave and the Valorous Smalls. I know nothing about it. I've got it sitting there. It looks great. It looks interesting. Um, and so, I, that's the kind of thing I enjoy is getting a book, either a book I know nothing about at all or a book by a writer that I like. And other than the fact that I like the writer, I know nothing about it at all. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm reading, uh, finally getting reading Guy Gavriel Kay's new novel, uh, Children of the Earth Sun and, and Sky. Yeah. Children of Earth and Sky. Sky. Which is out in the world, I think, now, and certainly in Canada. So I think it's actually released. It's, it's here, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's terrific so far. I'm actually reading a book about a critical book about music called 1971, Never a Dull Moment, which mounts the mm. argument that 1971 is the greatest year in the history of rock music. Convincingly mounts the argument. I can see that, but I, not having that, that date in mind, I don't have any idea what it means. And uh, what else have I been reading? Lots of short fiction, obviously. Obviously. And a few things that sort of are due for publication sometime in the, you know, later this year, obviously. Uh, some of the stuff I've been working on, things like Walter John Williams' new Praxis novella, The uh, Impersonations, um, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow by Kids Johnson, which I've mentioned a few times. Yes. And one or two other things. So, yeah, busy times. And I'm about to read Paul McCauley's book this week. So that I'm 
ready for the podcast next week when we will spoil the hell out of it for anybody who's not read it. And I will do that actually not having read the first in the set, so that'll be interesting. What is this a sequel to? It's not so much a sequel as it's set in the same Jack Jackalope uh, universe as, or Jackaroo universe as Jack- as so, so, something coming through. Yeah, okay. So it's but a yeah, sec- okay, second of those. Yeah, it should be interesting. And Paul, of course, is already hard at work at another novel, on another novel right now for Golans. And I'm, I'm delighted that Golans are supporting him and he's getting work coming out. Um, mm. I wish, as I say, the same was true for Gwyneth Jones. That's one of my frustrations. But so it goes with science fiction. So it goes. I think the, the, the writers will not write to, to, to your demand, as you as an anthologist know. Um, and I, editing my own series of critical monographs, know that no, we can't just order up a book on a particular famous writer because it's due. We have to find somebody willing to write it and has the time and the information. Yeah. Anything new exciting coming down the pipeline there, Gary? Uh, there are things coming in. Like I said, I mentioned, I mentioned the Nina Allen novel. I have... Uh, a pile of things, which I actually can't even see from where I'm No, I met at the now. University of Illinois. Oh, the University of Illinois. Well, um, we have... Um, I'm, I, I'd have to see what we have coming out this year. Uh, we will have a book on Ian Banks coming out probably next year. Uh, I probably shouldn't say too much about books that haven't been contracted yet, but there are some major writers dealing with major writers, which is something that excites me. People who are good fiction writers writing about writers that they admire. And you know who I wish was writing for you, Gary? Mm. I wish John Kessel was writing for you. I I have talked to John about this very thing. Uh, as a matter of fact. He'd write a great book about Bruce Sterling. Uh, he probably would. Or Stan Robinson. Well, one of the things, okay, this is, this is okay, given what you've been saying about criticism and the time you spend writing criticism, I feel guilty, even though I do, I do it, I feel remotely guilty that if somebody like John or like other novelists that we have that we are currently working with taking time away from their fiction should they be doing that in order to write a book for us on criticism and my answer of course is yes of course they should well my Um, answer actually is they should do whatever they want Gary well exactly and if this is intriguing to them in one case uh, we have someone I, I hope we'll be able to talk about this sometime soon. Very, very interesting writer doing a book on Ursula Le Guin, who wants to do it almost as a tribute. Now, to some extent, you don't want a critical book thought of as a tribute, but if you write anything about Le Guin these these days, and you're a writer in this field, you're going to be, to some extent, paying a debt. Sure. Um, and I think that's an honest critical approach. So. So that kind of thing, I think, is, is completely worthwhile. I think of a couple would be interesting. I mean, it would be fascinating to see Greg Bear write about Paul Anderson. Mm-hmm. It'd be fascinating, very fascinating, to have uh, Howard Waltrop write about Chad Oliver. Chad Oliver? That's an interesting thought. Well, you know, Howard knew Chad and was influenced by him, so, you know. There's all kinds of interesting little ones out well, there. Well, one of the issues that comes up is... Um, and this is an issue we can we, t- we touched upon this a little bit last week. We were talking about what makes a major science fiction writer. And one of the things I have to decide about this series, and it's not just me, but people at the University of Illinois, is can you sell enough books about Chad Oliver? Can you sell books about? Well, we can sell books about 
Wallace McMaster Bujold, we're pretty sure. We can sell books about Greg Egan. Um, Chad Oliver is, I'm not, he may be in print from the science fiction masterworks, yeah. but by and large is not widely known, even though he was, I loved him. He was a pioneer in anthropological science fiction. Um, in fact, he was an anthropologist at the University of Texas, which is probably where Howard Waldorf knows him from. Um, you know what's happening here, lot- Gary? We've hit the point in the bar-, bar conversation where everybody else wanders off and it's just you and everybody me now. Else- yeah, all right. Okay, fine. Avram Davidson. Love to have a book on him. Not going to happen anytime soon. Eileen Sorry. Gunn should finish it. She should finish her book, but she wouldn't need to go through my series for that. Ah, well. Well, look, let's wind it up. We'll come back next all week. Right. We'll do a normal Cood Street podcast, and we'll do a roundtable with the boys. And we'll and see what we'll we've got. See what happens. And okay. I will try every, I make every effort to read Paul McCauley's novel between now and then. Me too. Until then, my friend, I will talk to you again. Again on the Cood Speak Podcast. Bye-bye.